Welcome to Screen Thoughts with Hollister and O'Toole. Well, good afternoon, Ms. O'Toole. Hey there, Hollister. I just wanted to open with the comment that when you are right, you are right. Well, just can you tell me when I've been wrong so that I can know what you're talking about? <laughs> uh, what, what, do you, you what are you talking about? This is not really me bringing up your favorite movie, but when we were discussing La La Land. Oh, I can't believe Why do you keep taking the movie I hated most in the world and bringing it into our podcast? Because you said they should have cast Ansel Elgort. And I saw him promoting Baby Driver. He and Jamie Foxx were on. Did James you hear him Corden singing? Show. Is that why you're? I told you he can sing and dance like nobody's oh mama. Oh my goodness! Yep. And you were so yep. right. He was charming. He was great. I mean, I am glad that they put him in Baby Driver. Yes. <laughs> I know it sounds funny, but I just can't stand the pain. Girl, I'm leaving you tomorrow. Yes, he is. They're, they're calling him the new Ryan Gosling, which I think is so interesting because I think he's he's more talented in the vocal and dancing. You know, he, he grew up, he was in the New York City Ballet. I mean, you know, he went to, to LaGuardia School of, uh, you know, for singing and dancing and acting. I mean, he... He's been trained in a very, very big way, so he is really, really good. I love that. I think it's, a, by the way, if you haven't seen it, it's James Corden. We'll put a link up on okay. our site. Yeah, and sounds I good. kind of, I wish that Ansel could be my Uber driver. Um, I don't think he's going to be driving Ubers much. I think yeah. you're right. But he lives, by the way, he lives a very simple life in Brooklyn, in mm-hmm. a normal apartment. He takes the subway. He told this very charming story early on when um, he had been in Carrie. Do you remember the movie, the remake of Carrie? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah he yeah. had the starring role in that. So he's on the subway, and he sees this guy sitting there with his phone. He's watching Carrie. And he gets so excited. He's like, oh, my God, he's watching me. <laughs> so he comes on the screen, and he taps the guy on the shoulder, and he points to the screen, and he points to himself, and he's like, that's me. And the guy <laughs> looks at the screen, looks at him, and goes, yeah, okay, and then goes back to watching the movie. <laughs> And Ansel said he realized in that moment that perhaps, you know, he wasn't as special as he thought he was. So good for him. Ansel Elgort, certainly a face to watch for sure, right? We're going to move right in. We've got a lot of stuff to talk about this week. Saw a lot of movies. Oh, my. I watched a lot of stuff this week, too, Hollister. I know. I know. I'm so glad you kept up with me. Yay, you. I'm curious. Did you see any of the new season of Broadchurch on Amazon? I did not. No, I know it's out, but I haven't seen it yet. What about you? I saw the first episode, and I really like it. Oh, good. They return to a crime, so they go back to the season one formula of focusing on Hardy and Miller. Uh I think you're really going to like it. Good, because I, I, you know, I was not a lover of of season two, so I'm excited if they get back to the basics of what made them so great. And have you seen the trailer for Home Again? Hi. So I'd like to offer to buy you drinks. Really? The manager is making me ask for your ID. Uh, (laughs) By the way, I'm definitely old enough to drink alcohol. (laughs) Me too. Obviously. I was thinking about you with your trailer Wait, Tuesdays. is that home again? Is that um, Nancy Meyer's daughter? Yes, it that's is. That's been up was, on our social media. That's how current I am. Okay. Well. But um, this is my little bit of trivia from Home Again. So it's going to star Reese Witherspoon. Yeah. And do you know how Nancy Myers got her to star in her daughter's film? I don't know that. How did that happen? She offered her the part, the lead in The Intern. And Reese Witherspoon turned it down. Huh. So she approached her again. And well, can I just say, why isn't her daughter approaching Reese 
rather than her. Is this a, is she a helicopter mother? No offense. Like she kept, all, you know, she, by the way, on her social media, Nancy Meyer's social media on Instagram, she posted throughout the entire shooting of this movie. And I just felt like she was there too much. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, a well, little bit of a helicopter she, mom, a little bit. She's actually a producer on the movie. Yeah, but so you know what? She was, what you call but she producing. seemed to be behind the lens. You know, there were a lot of pictures from her that I thought, you know, maybe your daughter should be putting these up, not you. I'm just saying. One other thing I just wanted to mention before we get into our, you know, big topics of the week. But did you happen to see that article about the new Aunt May in the new Spider-Man movie? I did. Did you post about this too? Uh, No, I didn't post about it. I mean, go ahead. You go ahead. You talk about it. I I just thought it was so funny. The Wall Street Journal did a little article called, Hold On, You're Spider-Man's Aunt May? Okay, and they kind of look back on the last three Spider-Man iterations, which haven't taken that long. 2007, Rosemary Harris played Aunt May. She was 74. Five years later in 2012, Sally Field played Aunt May. She was 65. And now in the new Spider-Man that's coming out, Spider-Man Homecoming, Aunt May's going to be played by Marissa Tomei, who's so, 52. Wait, have you even watched any of the Spider-Man movies? Yes, I have. I saw the one with Emma Stone. Okay, so this is interesting to you because why? Spider-Man never gets any older, but Aunt May keeps getting younger. Okay, I mean, uh, you going know, okay. from Rosemary right, Harris to that. Marissa okay. Tomei like to play the same character. Okay. okay, I don't. It's I an don't, interesting I don't phenomenon. Really know much. I mean, I'm not a big Spider-Man lover myself. You know, some people get younger while other people get older. Okay, I'm, I'm <laughs> okay. going Aunt May. Is I want their secret. Okay, mm-hmm. okay, that sounds good. So now we need to get to. Our main features of the week, but I looked up the definition of beguiled to understand the beguiled. We ask for your protection over our school and we pray that we will be kept from harm throughout the night. Amen. Can you, do you know the definition? I do know the definition, but my bigger question is why the remake? I mean, this was already a 1971 movie starring Clint Eastwood. Sofia Coppola, she says, she makes it very clear it's not a remake. It's actually, it's a, it's based on the book, not, has nothing to do with Clint Eastwood's version. Well, Clint Eastwood's version was based on the book by Thomas Cullinan. A refuge or a hell, as Clint Eastwood, wounded Yankee, is brought to an all-girls school to become the prisoner of these man-deprived women. But the word beguiled means charmer and chant in a deceptive way. And, you know, I, I, I mean, I know what it means because, I mean, I've used it. You know, aren't you beguiling? Okay, but, I, but the negative connotation around it, I always thought you could sort of be beguiling in a cute and, you know, beguiling way. And is that because you're thinking of the Cole Porter lyrics? Yeah, I don't know what it is. But so, you know, you have to redefine the meaning of the word to be able to get into this film. But so did you feel that there was no reason to make this film or? I don't think, I mean, I never saw the original with Clint Eastwood, but I've seen the trailer and it seems like the plot is very similar. So I don't know that I would have felt the need to retell this particular story. You know, I I sort of do because I did go back and watch the original and it's so not female based. You know, this, you know, this story is about women who turn on each other and then turn on the guy. I hope you like apple pie. The plot to me reminded me of the beginning of Wonder Woman, where a man crashes into an island of women and they have to decide whether or not he's worthy of being saved. He seems to be a sensitive person. Does he? 
the shooting of it for her, you know, I went with a friend and when we left, she said the problem with this movie for me, meaning her, um, was that there was no action. It was just a bunch of still shots that were very lovely, but I don't know how she put them all together. And I thought that mm-hmm. was sort of very interesting. But to me, it was basically, we're going back to the Garden of Eden again. You know, I mean, it was all about the Garden of Eden. You know, the forbidden fruit of this guy, and don't touch him, don't touch him, don't touch him. You know, you can't connect with him. We're just having him here until he's well enough to leave. But each one of them could not walk away from the forbidden fruit. And then, of course, he, um, being Eve, you know, took a bite of the apple with the wrong piece of fruit. And, you know, and, and, and chaos ensues, and everybody pays in the end. I mean... <laughs> I was like, we are sitting in the Garden of Eden yet again. That is a very interesting interpretation. To me, I mean, to use two other Nicole Kidman movies, it felt like Cold Mountain meets the others. I can't say that gothic tales are really my thing, but I agree with your friend. It was very atmospheric. But I was waiting for something to happen. And then when it happens, I'm a little appalled. But I agree the lighting was appropriately dark and misty, but it did make me want to illuminate the movie a little bit more. I liked that it was done naturally by candlelight. And I would say the strongest thing about the movie is what they call the mise-en-scene or the mise-en-scene, the composition of every frame was well, beautifully yeah, that's done. What she's, you know, that's what she's known for. And considering she shot it in 26 days, she must have thought about the imagery well before that. But if we can get back to the Garden of Eden just for a minute, can we do that for a second? Okay. okay I'm not so, sure we ever really left. <laughs> okay. I, you know, <laughs> I, I halfway through was like, oh my God, I'm in the garden again. And here's Nicole Kidman who says to him... I admire your strength. I'm just trying to give them what they need to survive in these times. I'm worried that these girls will not know how to live out in the world. The world has changed so much. They're safe here. Garden of Eden was this place of safety, right? It was this place that was going to be perfect in every way as long as you didn't do any, make any mistakes, if you will, you know? So... So there's that point. But secondly, at first I was irritated by how long it was getting, you know, taking her to tell the story. And then I realized if she had told the story faster, the unraveling of these characters wouldn't have made sense and it wouldn't have been believable. She had to draw it out a bit because you just couldn't have them unraveling the way they did so quickly or it would have just been a jumble of craziness, you know, rather than okay, the monotony of the day takes you to that place in your mind where you can start to fantasize. And so then I, I, I not only forgave her, but I thought she made the right decision in terms of making us wait, 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 wait for the action because it takes a long time to mess yourself up in your head. It does. It doesn't happen overnight. And well, so that's probably a good thing. <laughs> well, I hope, yeah, I hope it, I hope it is a good thing. And then I decided that we're just in a hurry. We're just, you know, as, a, as, as humanity, we're just in a, too much of a rush. And the fact that she made you wait for it. And, you know, especially because she had to show the dynamic between all these individuals and then the girls turning on each other and competing with each other. And that scene at the table 
where with the apple pie, I was to die. It was and see, Hollister, uh, apple pie. It's your fruit from the Garden of Eden. Exactly. I, just want to say, exactly. I thought the acting was good. I was not surprised that Sofia Coppola won for Best Director at the Cannes Film Festival. By the way, only the second woman to ever win in the 70-year history of that festival, because it did have European pacing, if you will. I'm just not convinced that the payoff of such a slow first half was really oh, worth I it. Thought I, 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 after I got over, could you hurry up, please? Because you know me, I'm always like having to ration my popcorn to make sure it lasts longer than the trailers. You know, I, I'm always in a hurry. <laughs> but for me, once I saw, gosh, I can't really understand these characters unless I understand the tedious slowness of their lives. If you don't take me to how slow their lives were, then how can I possibly relate to where they're going with it, you know, so. Now, was it really that different from the remake? Because when I went back to see the trailer for the 71 Clint Eastwood version, there he was getting a sponge bath by one of the women, and that was definitely, you know, the first scene with Nicole Kidman and Colin Farrell. Well, you know, interesting. It was directed by a man, and it didn't show the female um, degeneration anywhere near the way this did. And it didn't show the nuance. Yeah, were it didn't go. And also, it's not the same dialogue and stuff. So it's not, I think it was taken from the book. I didn't read the book, but. The book was written in 1966. Thomas Cullinan's book was actually called The Painted Devil. Right. So I thought Nicole Kidman, though, she was born for those high necked, slim waisted like, period so dresses. It's funny you're saying that because you know how I have never been a Nicole Kidman fan. And then I fell in love with her in Big Little Lies, and I totally went to the Nicole Kidman fan club base. And now I thought her acting in this, her uh, facial expressions, her. Her desire that was never stated out loud, but you could see building up inside. I I just thought she was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Now, you weren't won over by her in the hours it took till Big Little Lies to make you a fan? I, I, I told you. I don't know why. You've liked her all along, right? Well, her choices have been very yeah. interesting. Yeah. I mean, I barely made it through Bewitched. And as you know, that was directed by the late, great Nora Bewitched, Ephron. Yeah. So I didn't see her. Yeah, you're that, missing but, uh, you nothing. Know, I, I haven't loved her. No, I haven't. Um, Days of Thunder, not the most auspicious beginning there, you know, but I've, I've definitely liked her and things. Colin Farrell, I'll say it again. I'll reaffirm everything I said about him in our podcast about the lobster. I find him charming. I find him very watchable. And, you know, we discussed this before. It's like the movie Misery, where it was so hard to cast the man chained to the bed because the first half of this movie, he's just recumbent. So there's not a lot for him to do. It's a hard part to play. Well, not only that, I just, you know, as a little bit of tidbit of uh, trivia for you all here, um, the scene where she's washing him took two and a half hours because the light kept going and coming and whatever, and they couldn't get the light for the cinematography properly done. So she basically washed that part of his body for two and a half hours. I'm like, he must have been like, I'm clean. Get me out of here. I gotta go. You're our most unwelcome visitor, and we do not propose to entertain you. You'll find them easily amused. You won't be here long enough for that. For me, that moment was not when she was washing his body, but when she was sewing up his leg. I, I had to look away. I never look away, you know. I mean, I went through the Silence of the Lambs loving every moment of it. So I, I just had to look away. I, I thought that was really hard to watch. I was looking for a credit for that stunt leg. I need rags 
I need chloroform. Go to the smokehouse, get the saw, now. Here's some real-life trivia for you, too. I mean, it's always blown me away that more U.S. soldiers died in the Civil War than all our other wars put together, even though our population was so low then. But one-third of all Union soldiers in the Civil War were immigrants. Almost 8% were Irish. So I thought it was interesting that in this version, he played an Irish mercenary. Yeah. You thought he was properly cast for this. I do. Do you not? You know, until you said that, I never thought about it. I haven't thought about it before this moment in time. I'm not sure I thought he was. I'm not sure they would have fallen for him. Maybe they would have fallen. Maybe the point of using him was they would have fallen for anyone. You know, it wouldn't have mattered. It was there. <laughs> they were so starved for male attention. But I don't. I don't know. I. I, I can't give you somebody See, who I thought should have played it. Um, well, now you've got me thinking about Ansel Elgort. Okay, you probably could have popped Ansel, out singing yeah, and exactly, dancing. Exactly. But you know, Colin Farrell to me is someone who interacts well with young kids and older people. Like I feel like he's a crossover artist in yeah, that way. Maybe, where maybe you may be right. But the real person to talk about here is, is Kirsten Dunst. If you could have anything in the world, what would it be? To be taken far away from here. Come with me. Can I just start off by saying this poor girl? <laughs> Okay, Melancholia, <laughs> Hidden Figures, Marie Antoinette, Little Women, Mona Lisa Smile, Bring It On. She's always either a bitch or really unhappy. And does, is she ever going to get a joyful role? And does this girl know how to smile and laugh? You know, well, she was she was in Spider-Man. But, no, but um, even yeah, in she, Spider-Man, she was not, there was no joy in her in Spider-Man. She was this very serious, like, is it, she, is that, is, are they casting her as herself and that's who she is? But I just, I hope that the next role she takes, I'm begging you, Kirsten, take a joyful role. Do us all a favor. Because every time I see her on the screen, it's like, oh my God, Eeyore's here. You know, this is not a person you want to be known as. I'm just saying, okay? Now, she was also in that tennis movie. Did you ever see that one? I did. And she was not joyful in that either. She was very serious. She was playing Wimbledon. She was the number one ranked woman tennis player in the world. And there was no joy. She had a couple of happy moments with the guy, but it was a terrible movie. And and she's not a good enough tennis player to pull it off. So... (laughs) Well, it's interesting to me. I mean, I I know she got cast here because Sofia Coppola had worked with her, of course, in Marie Antoinette. I've always found Kirsten Dunst capable, but I can't say I've ever really warmed to her. Yeah. Well, she also worked, you know, she was in that independent film with with Sofia Coppola too, The Virgin Suicides in 99. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 So she's worked with her a lot, clearly. Now, Mm -hmm. interesting, Sofia, hello, Sofia, you do not get points for this. Wanted her to lose weight for this role, and she said, absolutely not, I'm not doing it. Interesting. Uh, (laughs) What is wrong with you people? (laughs) You know, first of all, back in Civil War times, skinny was not cool anyway, you know, so... Though I'm not sure they had a lot to eat. Exactly, which is why you, it, you were, if you were a little plump, it meant you were wealthy and doing well and happy and happy, happy, happy. I don't know. I think they were sending, you know, their little school kids out to forage for mushrooms. I mean, it was three years into the war. Because remember, we had the same commentary on the zookeeper's wife, where the boy was a little too plump for wartime. <laughs> well, I, you know, I didn't... You know, I I wasn't happy that Sophia asked her to do that. But also, interestingly enough, she's working on her own production company with her mother. It's going to be called Wooden Spoon Productions. And the name symbolizes 
women and creativity, um, inspired by her grandmother, get this, who used wooden spoons to keep her in line when she was a girl. So she's taken these wooden spoons her grandmother beat her with, and she's going to make it the name of her production company. What is wrong with wow. us? Oh, That's where's the joy now, in that, that? Tell me the joy in that. Is that her German grandmother? Because uh, yeah, I, well, I, I did know. see where I don't know. she became a German citizen not that long yeah, ago. Well, her father was German. Now, what did you think? I know you're a fan of Elle Fanning. Did you like her in this? Um, I did. Now that I know that it was shot in 26 days with a two and a half hour sponge bath, it took <sighs> so little time to do a film that drags out every minute, you know? But mm-hmm. um, I know, I thought that was sort of an oxymoronic, interesting moment. But I like it. I think L Fanning lights up the screen. I think she's got great depth for somebody so young. Can I get you anything? Give me the key. You know I'd get in trouble for that. <laughs> and it was funny, because Kirsten said that she was really nervous on stay on the on the set with her because she cared so much what she thinks because she thinks she's such a great actor and so she was very nervous to be acting with her and i think in some of the scenes um you know she definitely is a standout performer in it and i don't think in the joint scenes like at the table and stuff I didn't think Sophia kept the camera on her very long, and maybe that was purposeful. I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, though, 26 days for a one-location shoot? It was two locations, actually. The inside was shot um, at a at a, somebody's home. It was not the same as the outside. Mm-hmm. But still, you know, it's basically one house in a war. So, you know, that's twice as long as shooting the hero, for example. I bet they could have done it even faster if they hadn't just gone off of natural lighting. Off, I don't get the feeling she's bouncing around <laughs> the set. Do you know what I mean? I totally get what you mean. Now, Colin, interestingly enough, he said this was his favorite set to ever be on, that he never felt more comfortable being surrounded by amazingly strong women. And he felt the Sofia Coppola sets up a stage for them to work in that is the most creative sense he's ever seen on, 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 a, on a set. Wow. I know. That guy knows how to, you know, give a soundbite while promoting a movie. And I do have to say the Coppolas have been busy. I mean, there's Eleanor Coppola, who just came out with Paris Can Wait. Roman, Sophia's brother, is a producer on this and still doing Mozart in the Jungle. So I think it might be time for Francis Ford to hop too. Well, and this is the first time her father hasn't been involved in any way in a film of hers. So that's interesting, right? She thanked him in the credits, Yeah, well, that is very interesting. Thanks, Dad, for, you know... Bearing me, but thanks, Dad, for having me. But she—he was not involved in this film, so. Well, now we've got Nancy Myers and her daughter, Francis Ford and his daughter. Now I also think they slotted its release brilliantly, because it's a few weeks after Wonder Woman, you know, set the stage, and basically it's doing very well in the box office. But there wasn't much to compete with it because Baby Driver came out last week and not this weekend. But the two of Baby Driver and The Beguiled are the two that did well in the cinemas and I think it's great that a such a you know a female based film you know held its own against Baby Driver second week you know so I thought they launched it really perfectly yeah two very different movies um which leads us of course to your best friend ever Emily Blunt did you see Young Victoria <sighs> Her Majesty the Queen 
I did see Young Victoria. This came out a couple years ago, but you mentioned that you were going to watch it. So It came out in 2009. Do you remember it coming out? I remember it coming out, and you might recall that I'm the one who's supposed to be on this royal moratorium. To say nothing of you love Emily Blunt more than life itself. You filmed her in person. You're so, you know, mad for her. And I remember when we were there at the Hamptons Film Festival, one person just shouted out of the audience, like, why didn't you marry your husband from the Young Victoria? And it was funny because someone else on the other side the room shouted out. I think she did okay in that department. <laughs> Wait, who's she married to? I, for, you know, I never remember those things. John Krasinski. But, okay. um, you know, Rupert Friend played the young Albert in this, your guy from Homeland. Do you ever feel like a chess piece in a game being played against your will? Do you? Constantly. Then you had better master the rules of the game until you play it better than they can. The team behind this movie, Jean-Marc Vallée directed it, who directed your Big Little Lies. It was written by Julian Fellows, who brought us Downton Abbey. It was produced by Martin Scorsese. The cast, I mean, Jim Broadbent, Paul Bettany, Miranda Richardson. It was a very strong team behind this movie. It just seems like Queen Victoria is really one of those people, one of those women of history that people just want to do movies about. I mean, and I can see why. I thought this was really well done. The only problem is he's too small She was very, very short, Queen Victoria. And Mm -hmm. he needed to be a stronger, taller guy to be, you know, her prince, in my opinion. Usually I'm the heightest when we comment on these things. Well, you know, maybe you you pass that on to me. But here's the thing. The queen, Queen Elizabeth, um, I'll I'll just refer to her as Lizbeth because that's what her friends call her. (laughs) Um, Queen Elizabeth, who would be furious if I ever referred to her as Lizbeth. Anyway, she said... I thought the film had a lot of good points, but apparently the queen is a stickler for accuracy. She wasn't too... Especially when she's the great-great-granddaughter? Yeah. She wasn't too impressed that they had Albert diving in front of Victoria to take a bullet in an assassination attempt, and she said it simply did not happen, and Her Majesty questioned the need for such a dramatic inaccuracy. She also thought the uniforms worn by the British officers looked too Germanic. Made me laugh. Oh, interesting. I know. I mean, I'm like, really? That's what you're going to talk about? Is that the, you know, first of all, you're married to a German prince. And secondly, really? That's the problem here? Albert and Victoria were German. The Exactly. Um, you know, once again, though, the cinematography was so yeah, beautiful. Wasn't it great? I mean, it's very yeah. sumptuous yeah. filmmaking with those sets and that lighting. But, you know, the story is so big, I can see why somebody would want to turn this into a miniseries. I enjoyed this more than the miniseries yeah, production that we reviewed. I loved the miniseries. I loved but, them. I've loved them all. I've loved, I just want to know even more about her, if possible. And it's funny, because remember how you made me watch Mrs. Brown? Remember? With Judy Dench yes. playing Queen Victoria. Yep. And now Judy Dench is playing Queen Victoria again in Victoria and Abdul. I am cantankerous. Greedy. Fat. I am perhaps disagreeably attached to power, but I am anything but insane. Has any other woman in history had so many movies made about her, I wonder? I can't help but wonder. Well, 
when you consider the size of her kingdom and the length of yeah, her reign, yeah. it does make sense. It should be a fascinating historical character. By the way, you can buy it on iTunes. I think you can buy it also on Amazon. You could check it out of the library. But, you yeah. know, I always am shocked when I remember that he died. Albert died when he was only 42. Know, right? She must have... He was so young. But how old I mean, they was already she had then? nine if, she, if he was 42, how old was she? She was probably about the same age because it already reigned together for 20 years. So they were similar, you know, in age. So she mourned him so much longer than she knew him, right? Did she? She? Mm-hmm. She? Is that true? She mourned him longer than she knew him. Oh yeah. Oh my yep. Gosh. And wore black every day I for know. the rest of her and life. And I, I didn't know she had laid his clothes out every day. Mm-hmm. That's just, you the know. thing that got me too is when she was growing up, they passed all those rules like she couldn't go up or down the stairs without holding the hand of an adult. Well, I need that now. I, thought, oh. I need somebody to help me. <laughs> you know, I, I thought about that. Gosh, I wonder if I asked my daughter to walk me up. And, I'm just kidding, but. Uh, you know, frankly, it was ridiculous. The whole thing was ridiculous. You know, and whoever you was know, walking her up and down, maybe they were the ones who were going to push her down the stairs. <laughs> like, well, I don't maybe know that you that's could do it with safe. your daughter what? while you guys are plotting out your next screenplay. I know, right? So would you recommend it, though, O'Toole? Would you? I, oh, I, I definitely yeah, would if you I haven't had so enough too. yet of Queen Victoria. But talking yeah, about Emily good. Blunt, I'm sure you saw what she's going to star in next. I did not. Oh, I don't know if I did. <laughs> okay. Here's your clue. Okay. It might make you think about Julie Andrews again. Oh, why are you Why are you bringing up all the... You, first of all, you brought up the movie I hated the most and the actor I hate the most. So go ahead. What Only is it? Only to say how right you were. Mary Poppins Returns oh, is coming out yeah. next year. Directed by Rob Marshall, who directed Emily Blunt in Into the Woods. So this one will also star Meryl Streep. And check out the cast. It's like a reunion for Mamma Mia. Meryl <laughs> Streep, Colin Firth, Julie Walters, plus Angela Lansbury, Dick Van Dyke, Ben Wishaw. And the twist on this is that the two kids are now grown adults and Mary Poppins resurfaces in their lives. So hmm. I'm going to have to check it out. Hmm. I, <laughs> I can't wait. Now, and also, you know what's really going to oh. irritate me? And I'm sure I'm right. Guess who's going to do okay. some cameo or other? Julie, don't you know she's gonna be like chimney sweeping something or something? There's no way they're gonna make that movie without her doing a cameo. That is hilarious. Do you think they'll be passing out spoonfuls of sugar? I don't know, but also they'll probably bring Dick Van Dyke. He's still alive. They're gonna bring him back to do a cameo too, and I'm gonna really roll my eyes and go seriously. He already has his IMDb credit. Um, He's definitely in it. Okay, ridiculous. You know, I don't know why they don't run these things by me before they sign up for them. Seriously, it's just so irritating. Anyway, okay, so um, young Victoria. I'm so glad I watched it. What a pleasure. And and then also I pretend that I've read a history book. You know, (laughs) it's the same thing. It's like I've often believed that if you put your hair in a ponytail, it's the same thing as taking a shower in the morning. And now I believe that if you watch something like Young Victoria, you can say I was just reading a historical novel recently. That's so funny. So binge watching is the new cramming. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, so... um, (laughs) Speaking of binge watching... Gypsy! Let's just take a moment and try uh, exercise. Pretend I'm Sydney. I miss you. I know I probably shouldn't, but I think about you all the time. I bet you do. I'm thinking it over. I used to believe that people determined their own lives. Yet there's one force more powerful than free will. Our desires 
I swear it's like our listener Val is starring in the Manchurian Candidate, and she suggests something on our social media, and you and I both get up well, and I, I like zombies amends. go to I our sense. I mean, I totally sent Val down the toilet a couple weeks ago. I've got to make amends. <laughs> okay, we have to stop here and start to play just a few bars of Fleetwood Mac's Gypsy. Yes, yeah, Stevie Nicks. Love her. Some lace, some paper flowers, back to the gypsy that I was to the gypsy. The music from, uh, we have to start with the music from, from this series. It's a Netflix original, and everyone's talking about it. It's, you know, it's gotten a, a tremendous amount of play. And some of the episodes, Patti Smith even does a song at the end. It's very interesting musical choices. Yeah. All right, we have to start with Naomi Watts, who chose to do this. Nicole Kidman's bestie. You see how they're all related? Well, there you go. Okay, now, do you like... I don't know Naomi Watts. Do you like her work? And do you know... Walk me through her. Okay, I do like her. You saw her recently in the Book of Henry. Yeah. She's been busy, busy, busy lately. She was in the Twin Peaks reboot. She's going to be in the forthcoming The Glass Castle based on Jeanette Walls' memoir, playing Brie Larson's mother. She was nominated for two Oscars. One was for 21 Grams with Sean Penn, and the other was The Impossible, Hmm. that movie that came out a couple years ago about Hmm. the tsunami. Hmm. She's been in a lot of stuff. She was in A Door with Robin Wright that we talked about two weeks ago. I thought she played it. I mean, I I think she's excellent on the screen. I just don't really know her, you know, and I figured you would, so... I think her look changes a lot, and I don't mean her haircut, uh-huh. but she uh-huh. really, she looks different when she plays each character, a little bit like Daniel Day-Lewis. Maybe, yeah. So she and Nicole Kidman, they went to the same high school, but they really met on the 1991 film Flirting. Well, we have to start with Ruben, the writer of this, because she she was a writer who was sort of touted on the East Coast when she was getting her, you know, PhD in writing or something. And then she headed out to Hollywood and they wanted her to write like Fifty Shades of Grey because she was known for writing these incredible sex scenes. And they wanted her to write Fifty Shades of Grey stuff and she didn't want to do it. So she put together this plan. Her sister's a psychotherapist and she talked to her sister and she put together this idea and pitched it to Netflix herself before Naomi Watts or Sam Taylor Johnson, who, as you know, directed the first Fifty Shades of Grey, before they signed on to star and direct in it, Netflix had already signed on. So that's pretty amazing for a first-time writer. Mm -hmm. So Sam Taylor Johnson wanted to do it. And you can see her in... I can see her Fifty Shades of Grey, you know, in this. She only did the first two episodes of this 10-episodic series. But did you like it? (laughs) <laughs> you know, Hollister, I found myself sucked in and I needed to know where it was going to go, how it was going to end up. And the only thing that I might possibly be able to say in my defense, <laughs> and not that the fashion is that much to write home about, but I was really interested in Naomi Watts's clothing. <laughs> and I read something that I thought was really interesting. Back in 1931, Samuel Goldwyn was convinced that women went to the movies to see how other women dressed. Well, maybe you do, but I do not. (laughs) I got to tell you, the fashion's always a big draw for me. And again, I don't mean that this is like Sex in the City, fashion porn, but I found her clothes interesting. So in 1931, Samuel Goldwyn, guess how much he offered Coco Chanel to come to Hollywood and design clothes. And this was the first foray into real designers versus costume designers. I get, I'm assuming it was a lot. <laughs> I don't know. 
I mean, it sounds like a lot to me now. A million dollars in 1931 to come twice a year to dress his stars on set and off. And I just put this out there as perhaps my meager little defense for why I got so sucked into this series, because when I heard what it was about, you know, a troubled psychotherapist, I thought, okay, I've seen this before. I guess I feel like I've been living my life as two people. I don't know which one is real. I don't know who's in control anymore. And when I heard that, okay, she's going to use what her clients tell her to inject herself into some people's lives, I thought, okay, I first saw that in Woody Allen's Everyone Says I Love You. And then when I heard that she's disturbed or deranged or whatever you want to say, I was picturing something along the lines of Meg Ryan in in The Cut. Mm -hmm. And then I think I was relieved that it wasn't that bad in terms of slit your wrists watching it, you know? So I definitely... I found it interesting on some level. It was like my trashy, guilty little pleasure. Ruben said that the inspiration for this was Diane Lane in Unfaithful. And it's funny that oh, you went which to... which I love. Yeah, we, I, well, that's why I bring it up. I thought, oh, that's... <laughs> but here, I have, to, we, I have to just give a little side thing here. Okay, so I'm, I am talking to O'Toole on the phone yesterday, and I'm saying to her, oh, by the way, you know, I just want to let you know, I watched Gypsy. And she said, oh... I, I, I'm, yeah, I started, I said, you did? And she said, yeah. And I said, well, how many did you watch? Because usually O'Toole watches like one or two. Actually, Hollister, the incredulity in your voice. I just finished episode, let me tell this story. I just finished episode seven and I, I, I was speechless. And I said, what? And she goes, we can't talk about it now because we never speak before we podcast. And I just want everyone to know, for O'Toole to watch seven episodes in like a two or three day span when she had a bunch of other stuff she's working on, I thought to myself, really? Like, first of all, this is so not in your wheelhouse, my friend. And I'm like, well, and you now you're telling that, me it's because you liked watching what she was wearing on the screen. Well, that's partly true. And there was more plot than the beguiled. But the incredulity in your voice, when you called me yesterday, I was driving. I had to pull over. I was laughing so hard at your one I, I, really I, I, I'm speechless. Absolutely speechless. You were so speechless. I went home and I watched the final three episodes. <laughs> I mean, I did fast forward through certain chunks, but I was just curious where it was going to end up. And knowing that this is just season one, we don't really know where it's going to end and well, but also there's a lot of intellectualism in this series and it's getting, was people are loving it or they're hating it. There's no sort of, oh, it's okay. Everybody should sort of watch, you know, that's, that's not so, no, what people are writing about. If you think about it, there's a lot of intellectual approach to many, many different things, but in a palatable way. So the, I might've missed the intellectual approach. Okay. Well, her child has gender issues and they're trying to not squelch her creativity as she says she would prefer to be a boy. Okay. Kids Mm -hmm. like six or seven, seven or eight years old. Okay. She's, you know, finding, she's finding herself attracted to a woman, but not in this sort of in your face way. And somebody wrote on some, uh, something that I read, she almost kisses her 18 times before they actually kiss or something like that. And I thought, yeah, that's right up O'Toole's alley. Never in your face. What? No, it's, it's never in your well, face. This is what I'm, I'm assuming. I think. I'm assuming you haven't watched all 10 episodes. I watched all then. 10. It's never oh. in your face. You know, it leads up to it in a sort of creative. I remember you once saying on our podcast that you prefer a bedroom scene where all you see are the billowing 
curtains, and I'm like, I don't know anybody like that. I'm not sure that I did say that. that. You absolutely did. Blurred so many boundaries. You know what? I mean, there were moments where I was watching this where I was like, okay, this is like, you know, Netflix light porn. Yeah. But I wouldn't call no, this the it most was so, subtle. It was, it, yeah, it was sort of, you know, it was light. It, maybe that's why they wanted her to write sex scenes because she does write a scene that is that is intuitive but not in your face, here's what happened, you know? So she, you can... Okay, subtle. I'm thinking yeah, 1930s yeah. Hollywood with Coco Chanel dressing them in clothes. I'm not exactly thinking this, but but the the plot I did find a little interesting. I mean, the dialogue could have been better, but I thought the acting was good. Yeah. Well, Rubin said that she... she here's her quote. I really like the idea of forbidden lines and what that means. I have been thinking about therapists and the power that they have by knowing these intimate details about their patients. In a way, it's a super voyeuristic job. And I've often felt that you love watching life. You know, I, not that you don't participate in it, but it's true. We were a voyeur as this life is unfolding. And some people's criticism of it is that it unfolds too slowly and that the last episode, episode number 10, is all you need, you know, you just, that could have been episode number two, you know, there, all the stuff that happened in between, you know, didn't need to happen. But I think, again, that slow unraveling of somebody's life doesn't happen overnight, you know, it just doesn't. And I thought as you got to episodes seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, it actually got more interesting. Yeah. And by the way, the last so- three episodes are worth the wait and it also sets it up for what could be an incredible you know basically it all unravels and it's perfect because the next season you know could will be really interesting to see how it or if she can put it all back together you know what it made me think of on some level do you remember back on Seinfeld where Jerry Seinfeld falls for Janine Garofalo and people were pointing out that's just because she's just like you. She's a stand-up comedian and she's funny and you really just want to date yourself. Well, in this, Naomi Watts says point blank that she recognizes herself in the character yeah. of Sydney. Yeah. And it is that plot line all over again where she misses her pre-marital self. Yeah, but she also, there's a vicarious thrill of living on the edge. There is. Which is interesting because as the episodes go on, you don't know how long this has been going on in her marriage which I find watchable. Well, obviously, since she never gave up her apartment, it's been going on since the very beginning. And yet Blythe Danner makes an appearance as her mother, and she's paying the rent on that apartment. It was interesting, too, because when I saw that her name was Jean, I thought that name doesn't fit her at all. And then when her name was Jean Holloway, and I was like, oh, on the affair, it was Noah Soloway. There's something okay, you to need this, to regroup but, and get a life. Because but then, when I, I, I can't believe you're going to translate this into the affair, which is actually brilliant. And by the way, but, the affair had that same slowness that turned me off to it eventually. It was sort of like, I don't want to hear two versions of the same story back to back. You know, I have my own opinion. I don't need to. <laughs> you know, like. And to me, that was an interesting yeah, perspective on yeah, perspective. Exactly. But I thought, okay, the name Jean doesn't really fit her. But then I thought, maybe it's not supposed to. Well, or maybe I was just giving the series more credit than it deserves. Yeah. I mean, it, it, the whole thing is very interesting. And also, her mother is so in your face crazy, you know, about... I mean, her brutality at the dinner table, you know, bringing up those pieces of her childhood was just mind-blowing. Absolutely mind-blowing. But because they don't introduce her until, you know, eight episodes in or something like that, again, all of a sudden you see another side to Naomi Mm -hmm. Watts that keeps it interesting. Because, you know, I'm not going to say that the therapy sessions are anything like 
in treatment, which I thought was fascinating with Gabriel Byrne oh, right. playing a therapist. Would like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I loved yeah. that show. And so it's not like they made the most of the therapy sessions, mm-hmm. but it was her life outside that room. Now, what about Billy Crudup, who plays her husband? Who are you? I told you. I know, but where were you, really? I liked him playing a lawyer. I thought he had a really interesting take on it because I thought their chemistry together was believable. There's whole scenes where I'm thinking, okay, is anyone babysitting their little child? They seem to both be able to be out and about a lot. Exactly, (laughs) a lot. And his dynamic with the people that work at his firm... I thought in the, as the episodes went on again, you're thinking, okay, do I really have this chronology down pat or are they going to unpeel another layer to this onion? I wanted to bring something else out too. Like she's a housewife in Connecticut. They've moved out of the city where she was clearly much more comfortable to what she's sort of making almost like it's a Stepford Wives, you know. And, you know, I, it's hard, I'm hard pressed to find a film where women of the burbs, or suburbs, as they really should be called, are presented in the kind of light that would make you want to move outside of a city. We go to mm-hmm. Big Little Lies, we go to the Stepford Wives, we go to any time women are gathered in the suburbs trying to live a life while their husbands are in doing the big work, is just never seems to be something someone would aspire to. Someone needs to write a film where women of the suburbs do really well because, you know, you've got, you know, housewives of, of Hollywood and San Diego. And desperate housewives. Yeah, yeah desperate, even the words. I mean, but I, mm-hmm. tell me a film where women in the suburbs are happy people. Tell me one. <laughs> it's so funny. The first thing that came to my mind is not the suburbs, was Little House on the Prairie. <laughs> okay, well, you know, she didn't prairie. have a lot of neighbors to have coffee with. <laughs> and she probably didn't have it that easy either. Yeah, so I don't think it's, so I don't think that it You'd have portrays, to go back to like a 1950s yeah, TV it's, show. It's sort of unfair to women in the suburbs, and I think they should unite and get somebody to write a screenplay that makes their life a little better than what all these films say it is. <laughs> You know, and also the people writing these things have never lived in the burbs. So it's just so funny that, you know, there you go. I mean, Stepford Wise is written by a man, you know, like whatever. Speaking of Billy Crudup, who was in 20th Century Women with Elle Fanning. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I really feel like there's 10 actors on the planet, but I liked him in Jackie. He's in two movies coming out that I'll have to check out. One is Justice League, that superhero reunion that brings back Gal Gadot. Wonder Woman and Robin Wright, Ben Affleck, Amy Adams, Diane Lane is going to be in that too. Okay. But he's also going to be in the movie adaptation of Maria Semple's book, Where'd You Go, Bernadette? And Kate Blanchett is going to play Bernadette. So that's a book I really enjoyed. And Maria Semple, she started out as a TV writer. Before she became a novelist, she wrote for Mad About You, which was a series I always thought was really fun. So I'll be very curious cool, about that cool. movie adaptation. Well, thank you for this, Val. You know, um, I, I I really liked it. I look forward to season two. Yes. So, you know, there we just spent 10 hours on our <laughs> Val atonement program. Well, and I, and <laughs> I want you to know, everyone out there, this is really unusual for O'Toole to do that. In a, she's not a binge watcher. <laughs> but you know what? I'm off now to get some, uh, you know, uh, you know knee-high black leather boots. I thought it was very credible of you to actually admit it. I'm surprised you did because... Yeah, I, I really was totally in shock, and I'm glad we could share that with our listeners. So, so I'm going to move right into this week's list of six. Okay. Which, you know, I, we know 4th of July is over. We know it ended two days ago. We know you've all moved above and beyond. But we wanted to do six movies with red, white, or blue in the title. 
So Mm -hmm. we probably should have done it last week. We'll do it better next year. Promise. Okay. So you want to kick us off? Okay. I'm going to start with Red. The Red Shoes from 1948. It was the first movie I ever remember making me cry. It must have been on TV. I saw it when I was really little and I just remember bawling. It featured some real life ballerinas and, you know, a ballet that was based on The Red Shoes by Hans Christian Andersen. Won two Oscars. The Red Shoes. Daring the original musical that captures all the glamour of the south of France in exquisite technicolor. Blending compelling beauty and high drama with a love story of sheer enchantment. Okay, so you have to know what... I've got one with red in it, too. I've actually got two with red in it. Guess which one my first one is. Reds with Warren Beatty? No. Okay. I didn't like that movie. Um, I thought it was long. Well, I figured if it had Diane Keaton in it, it might not be yeah, on your no, list. list. Okay, but it has okay, red. Excuse um, me. My favorite red movie is... Um, Silence of the Lambs. Okay, and so what movie has the name... Has the word red in it that I would pick? Silence of the Red Lambs. <laughs> Okay, it's Red Dragon. Red Dragon, oh, also written by Tom Harris, yes, with there Anthony Hopkins go. playing Hannibal Lecter, and Edward oh. Norton, who I think is phenomenal in this role, and I wish they had found a place for him. I mean, not that I would ever replace Clarice, who is, you know, my mirror image, but Edward Norton. <laughs> and it's really an amazing cast and an amazing story. It's really well done. So I picked Red Dragon. You know, it's kind of a relief to me, Hollister, that July 4th is already over and maybe your barbecue is packed away before we start discussing Hannibal Lecter again. Okay, you know what? I'm not letting you make me feel bad at all. So just go right ahead. So what's your next one? Okay, I'm still on the color red. I'm going to go with the red violin. Oh, from okay. 1998. Yep. It won an Oscar for Best Music, and I thought this device was pretty original, that you follow the story of this violin through three different centuries. Who's owned it? Who's played it? Who's trying to get it back at an auction? Who's going to be its newest owner? Huh. Okay. Okay, I'm going to go to White Knights. Oh, yeah. great choice. It's with Baryshnikov and... Gregory Hines, Isabella Rossellini. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I just loved it. I loved the dance routines in it, the music in it. Uh, it's just fabulous. You can't go wrong with White Knights. And you know who else was in it? Who? Helen Mirren. Oh, she was, Playing yeah. the Russian. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I always found that interesting because, you know, her grandfather was a czarist aristocrat. She wasn't the Russian Miranoff. darling. She was yes, she his, was. his um, manager. No, she played a Russian. She did? Oh, she played his ex-lover. White Knights was directed by Helen Mirren's future husband, Taylor Hackford. Oh, I didn't know that. Huh. What else did he mm-hmm. direct? Ray. Ray Ch- the Ray Charles film? Uh-huh. Wow. Okay, what do you have next? All right, this is my last okay. one, and it's really only one. So I'm going to technically go with the movie Blue, but it was part of that trilogy that came out in 93 and 94 by Krzysztof Kieslowski. Huh. It was called Three Colors... Blue, red, and white. Oh, I don't even. Red, I never white, heard and of blue. This. Do I need to hear of it, or yeah. you, were you? It was, wait, were you struggling to find the third one, or you really loved it? <laughs> well, I remember seeing blue, but I've never seen red, and I've never seen white. But Juliette Binoche was in all three. Okay, I love her. And yeah, I really yeah. do love Juliette. I gotta Binoche. check that out. And, yeah, and Julie Delpy was in white. Okay, okay, I'm all over this like glue. I'm gonna check it out for sure. Okay, okay, and then I'm gonna end with the hunt for Red October, which doesn't surprise you in the least, with Sean Connery and Alec Baldwin. I love Alec Baldwin in this. I love Sean Connery in this, and I love the whole premise of it, and the fact that it's based on an incident that may or may not have happened always makes me happy. Well, Hollister, we actually got all three colors in there, red, white, and blue. I'm afraid our time's up. 
going to assure you I will never, ever become a psychotherapist. Well, I already knew that, but if you didn't know that, I'm glad you've now come to that conclusion. <laughs> Even though apparently they have nice clothes. Over and out.